0: We are back on the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and it'd be fantastic to hear your thoughts on who you'd most like me to have on the show in the future. You can make your suggestions on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two B's. I really would love to hear your thoughts, but to the show today. And there's nothing I love more than hearing incredible lessons learned from a serial entrepreneur over decades of starting SaaS companies. And that's exactly the case today, as I'm thrilled to welcome Steve Newman, founder and CEO at Scalar, the startup that helps your DevOps team solve more problems in less time with log monitoring and analysis in seconds and Steve has raised over $27.5 million in funding with Scaler from many friends of the show including Sousa Ventures, Bloomberg Beta, Shasta and GV. As for Steve, prior to Scaler, he was the founder of Rightly which was acquired by Google to become the little known Google Docs. Now that is quite an achievement but before that he founded two prior startups, Ann Arbor Softworks acquired by Ashton Tate and Bitcraft acquired by Macromedia. And if that wasn't enough, Steve also sat on the technical advisory board at Box for over three years And I do also want to say a huge thank you to the wonderful Leo Polovets at Sousa Ventures for the intro to Steve today. I really do so appreciate that, Leo. However, before we dive into the episode with Steve, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Activity Hero. Activity Hero helps parents find camps, after-school classes, workshops, and kids' nights out. Camp and class providers nationwide can get new customers, track registrations, and manage payments in one great app, and you can learn more at activityhero.com, and to learn how how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Activity Hero did, then visit WePay.com forward slash Sasta, and WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's WePay.com forward slash Sasta. Who knows, work with WePay, and you could even be featured in a future profile. Start at WePay.com forward slash Sasta. And speaking of transforming your business, as a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, whether that be hiring execs, developing managers, retaining top talent, and fundamentally building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. And it helps companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a strong company culture. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines both performance management and employee engagement, so operators can really make sure top performers are happy. And Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to SaaS listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Saster. that's l-a-t-t-i-c-e.com forward slash Saster. build an award-winning culture with lattice the number one people management solution but without further ado i'm now very very excited to hand over to steve newman found and ceo at scaler good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up Steve, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, having heard so many great things from Leo at Sousa. So thank you so much for joining me today,
1: Steve. Uh, Thanks, really looking forward to it. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, Not nearly as excited as I am, but I would love to kick off today, Steve, with a little bit about you. So tell me, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and then really come to found Scalar?
1: So Scalar, I guess, uh, would be my second trip into into the world of SaaS. The first having been a startup called Rightly, and there's a connection between the two. So Rightly, uh, it was acquired by Google in 2006 and became uh, part of Google Docs. And winding up at Google was a fascinating place to be, uh, I'm sure in any period of its existence, but you know, certainly then around 2006, uh, things were growing rapidly and lots of fascinating stuff going on. And we wound up working on a database infrastructure project that related to Google Docs and some of the other applications and wrestling with a lot of problems with operations and keeping our code working efficiently and our systems working. And basically we had the problem that we wound up setting out to solve at Scalar, which is that it was just too hard to get a sense say, to wrap our heads around all the data that these systems were generating, understand what was going on, track down and fix problems in an efficient way. And so, you know, Scalar grew out of having that problem and uh, just trying to come up with the best way to solve it. And it just clearly made sense as a, as a SaaS solution, both because you know all the reasons that we know and love SaaS of uh, you know building something that people don't have to manage themselves and is available on demand but also because for this kind of application where you're working with large amounts of data, um, there's actually an economy of scale that you can get by running kind of all your customers worldwide in one central place. That was part of what led us to the, the SaaS approach for Scaler.
0: Now, I, I love that element of kind of scratching the own itch and that kind of idea generation process. I do have to ask this, Steve. We obviously mentioned the time at Google that in some phenomenal growth periods. Question from Leo Poloves. What were the biggest takeaways for you from that experience? And maybe how's it shaped how you think About the building and scaling
1: of Scalar today. So actually, so you know, one thing that we took away from Rightly was not to worry too much about competition. If you see an unmet need, even if it feels like a lot of people are circling around that, if it's unmet, then it's unmet. Rightly was like the tenth online word processor, but it was the first, I think, maybe that happened to hit a certain combination of just simplicity and polish, and you know, I think that helped us to take off. There are a lot of other products circling around, some of which, in some ways, were very sophisticated, but none of which quite managed to scratch the same itch. We went very quickly from, uh, with rightly, from idea to launch. It took about a hundred days. Even so, in that hundred days, it seemed like a new competitor was popping up every week. And for a while, we were worried about that. Uh, but in the end, none of them really affected us because they never they never quite hit what we were going for or, or what we were lucky enough to, to stumble onto. And you know, I think a lot of that actually carried across to scaler. Um, you know, log management is certainly a crowded space. It was crowded before before we even got started with Scalar. But again, you know, we felt like there was really an unmet need. You know, a lot of these products were just too cumbersome, too slow, too hard to use and weren't getting used. You know, we had felt that ourselves and we'd talked to other people and hear similar stories and think that experience with rightly gave us the courage to say that just because the market is crowded doesn't mean there is not an opportunity. You know, if it feels like something is missing, then there really may be something that's missing.
0: Totally. And I'm so with you on the kind of element of rowing your own race. I love that. Kind of mindset. I do want to start though on kind of top down approaching of the roadmap, so to speak, the foundational element of any business really. You said to me before that you should involve customers early in the process of developing your narrative. Tell me, Steve, what are the benefits of involving customers early in the process?
1: So, of course, you know, you need to involve customers early just in the definition of your product. You know, this is commonplace that you make sure you're you're building the right thing and, you know, something that people will actually need. But, you know, I think a nuance of that is that you don't have a product if you don't know how you're going to talk about it. If you have an idea, this is what I'm going to build, but you know, you haven't figured out kind of your, you know, your elevator pitch or your your crisp explanation of what it is, then you haven't really finished defining the product. You know, it's not enough to build something that people need. You you need to be able to talk about that in terms that will resonate. And in the process of figuring out that description that's going to resonate, that may come back and actually affect the way you build the product or even what the product is going to be. And so you really need to be working with potential customers early not just to figure out what their needs are that of course is critical but also to figure out how you're going to talk to them about this thing that you're building and you need to iterate on that message up front just as much as you're iterating on your what the actual problem you're solving is you know that this was another lesson uh, really f- for me from rightly we thought that the rightly narrative was going to be all about collaboration uh, and this is how we always used to talk about it at the beginning we're building this tool for collaborating on document creation. But that was a little bit abstract for people. And really what everyone was interested in was just, oh, this is like Word, but it's on the web. And, you know, we were very scared of that message at first, because Word, of course, is, you know, a huge, mature product. And we didn't even do 1%. If you look at kind of a feature list back then, even today, Google Docs today doesn't do 1% of everything Word does. So in terms of a product concept, it was very different. But in terms of the narrative, of course, most people don't use most of the Word feature set most of the time. They think of Word as just, well, you know, it's, it's where I go when I you know type out a document. And that's what Whiteley was for people on the web. But, you know, we had to have a lot of failed conversations with people. where We were trying to get them excited about collaboration before we realized that actually our narrative had to be just about creating documents online. And once we figured that out, that changed the whole way we built the product. It meant, for example, that the core editing experience had to be really solid. Can I dive in? And ask. You know, we mentioned kind of the deluge of
0: data earlier. In terms of deluge of data, in terms of kind of feedback from customers, how do you distinguish between what you take, what you don't take, what you move forward with, and and how you think about kind of consolidating that customer feedback into actionable kind of progression points?
1: It's a great question. Uh, I don't know that I have a great answer. Yeah, I mean, this is just one of the classic hard problems of starting a company or starting any you know kind of a project, and some of it just comes down to intuition but there's this line you have to strike. I mean, you, know, you start out with a concept of in your head of what you're going to build, and uh, you go out with that, and you have your early conversations, and you talk to people, and some of what you hear is going to fit with your preconceived notion, and, and some of it isn't. And I don't know that I can say much more than, than it's an art. I mean, you know, you're going to hear things that don't fit with your idea, and sometimes that's a distraction that you need to ignore because the person you're talking to actually isn't a good customer for your idea, and they're a customer for some other idea, and that's fine, but you don't want and get distracted by that. But sometimes, you know, what they're telling you is really important that your idea is 20% off. You need to adjust it. And I don't know a, a scientific way to approach that. You know, for me, it's just, you know, kind of talk to a lot of people and then try to be very honest with yourself. If everyone is telling you the same thing, if nobody resonates with what you're saying and everybody is telling you something else, then, you know, you need to respect that. But if you're hearing, a, as is more common, a jumble of different opinions, you you just try to need to, I think, you know, expose yourself to enough different perspectives that hopefully you're going to start to see the forest for the trees and recognize the patterns okay there's this group of people who are not my customer and i'm going to disregard that and there's this group of people who are my customer and uh, you know i need to listen to what they're telling me that this part of my message resonates and this part doesn't
0: totally I, th- I think kind of that kind of intellectual honesty and mental plasticity is kind of the key to success there once we kind of have some products out and we have those users uh, engaged there's the element of analytics and growth hopefully if we do couple the two. On analytics, we chatted before and you said to me that numbers are great, but small numbers deceive. I've got to ask Steve, can you unpack this to me and how you think about that and maybe how timing of analytics in the life of a company influences
1: the prioritization of it and how one should view it? So the problem with small numbers is just that there's so much noise. There's so much happenstance in there. You know, if in one month you acquire, you know, 500 new customers and in the next month you acquire a thousand new customers, you know, that's real. Some, you know, you can go in and try, all right, why did that happen? Did we change our advertising approach? What did we do? Like, clearly a real thing happened there. You know, doubling from 500 to 1,000 is a very solid thing. If, you know, in one month you closed one new customer and the next month you closed two, or in one month when you're getting started, you close no customers and the next month you do close a customer, that can be anything. That can be, you know, that's happenstance. And if you start, you know, looking at that jump from one customer closed to two and try to back propagate that into, well, clearly this ad campaign was 30% more effective. And clearly, this messaging, you're just making things up. You're reacting to random chance. And it can be hard to discern that dividing line. You know, there are statistical tests you can apply and so forth. But the truth is, you know, it can be easy to, to get those wrong a little bit. But even without trying to figure out exactly where the dividing line is, and of course, it's not a sharp line. It's not, you know, yesterday we don't have data and today we do. You know, the data goes from random to noisy to solid uh, in a gradual fashion. But, you know, I think think the, you know, without diving too deeply in, into that, it's easy to get caught up in numbers. And we have so many tools today that will make numbers available to us, you know, from every direction. And, um, there's so much conventional wisdom about how you, you have to respect the data that it's just important to, you know, have this sense in your head that in the early days, when the numbers are small, they're potentially incorrect, but the, you know, it's, it's, it's actively because there's so many things that push you toward paying attention to the numbers. It's sort of actively deemed. Because you can start chasing random, you start believing them, you know, much more than they're actually able to tell you. And, you know, I think there's two things that you do about that. The first is, especially in the very early days, um, you have to go past the numbers and really get into the qualitative data and experience. So if you have a, let's say you're trying to close a sale and you succeed or you fail. So you get one number out of that, you know, one sale or zero sales, but there's so much other information that you got through that interaction. As you were talking to the prospect, what resonated with them? What didn't resonate? What did they say during the demo? What were they excited about? If they gave you feedback about the product, what were they talking about? If they used the product, how did they use it? You should be able to write five pages about that interaction with that sales prospect. And there's so much more there than just the one number of you know one sale or zero sales. So you know the real point about the small numbers is not to let them distract you from this mass of qualitative data. Now, the qualitative data is harder to work with. You can't really it up into a spreadsheet. It's going to play to all your cognitive biases. It's going to be easy for you to pay attention to the data that agrees with your idea and ignore the the parts that don't. So, uh, and this is why once you have large-scale data, that's a tool you really want to rely on. But when the large-scale numbers just aren't there, it's all the qualitative stuff is is what you have. And you just have to try to be as diligent about gathering it and as honest with yourself about avoiding biases as, as you look at it as you can. And then the other thing is, is, you know, there are a lot of different numbers that are describe different parts of, of your business, and some of them achieve significance before others. So, you know, at the stage where any given month, you're bouncing between zero and one deals closed, you may be bouncing between, you know, five and 10 prospects and 100 and 200 leads and 1000 and 2000 impressions, visitors to your site. So those earlier stages of the funnel where the numbers are a lot bigger, become statistically meaningful a lot sooner. And so a uh, simple thing, you can do is just ultimately you're going to need to optimize every state of your sales pipeline, but the earlier stages kind of go quantitative much sooner because the numbers are so much bigger up there early in the pipeline. The the one danger there though is if you're, let's say you're trying to optimize for traffic to your website, but you're not able to ground that numerically all the way down to customers closed, then it's easy to see whether a certain ad campaign or a certain message or a certain whatever activity is going to bring more traffic to your site, but the numbers won't tell you whether it's useful traffic. It won't tell you whether it's, uh, you know, people who are actually valid prospects. So that's where you still need to be careful to not rely just on the numbers, but, you know, continue using your common sense and whatever qualitative data you can gather to make sure that the number that you're optimizing for is actually one that's ultimately going to be relevant to your business.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, listen, I, I always think back to it when you say that, uh, you know, half of my marketing budget is wasted and half of it's effective. I'm just yeah. not sure which half is which I do have to ask then, Steve, in terms of those kind of numbers, for you today, if you get up and looking at one guiding metric that suggests the direction of your business, is there one which leads in terms of prioritization, be it ARR, be it number of customers, be it usage, be it dot, dot, dot?
1: That's a great question. And, you know, of course, all those are important in different contexts. You know, I guess for us, you know, I guess we focus on the numbers that bear on the things we need to work on. And in our case... We don't worry much about usage because we know it's really strong. You know, once we get people onto the onto our platform, you know, they use it, they don't, they love it, they don't leave, and we can't get too complacent about that, but we're a startup and we need to focus, and so that's not where we focus. You know, ultimately, we focus on ARR, but as, uh, you know, you always want to try to find, you know, ARR is a pretty trailing indicator of all the work you're doing. Uh, you know, obviously, it reflects the closed deals, which happen after all the steps along the way that you're trying to optimize. Really, what we're always trying to look for is which metrics can we point to that are going to be the best leading indicator of ARR. And and so in particular, leading indicator of being able to close new customers. And so we look at things like the number of of good trials and and POCs that we're getting into because that's both deep enough into the pipeline that it clearly reflects something very real, but it's early enough to be uh, more of a leading indicator than than ARR. Totally. No, absolutely. It makes sense. Uh, Speaking of kind of... the metric that you look at
0: to define growth. Paul Graham stated that in order to scale, you've got to do things that don't scale. I have to ask Steve, how do you personally feel about the do things that don't scale element?
1: I love that quote because you know I think especially when he when he first said it, it was so contrarian, and it's absolutely true. You know I think his point was people get too focused about you know how am I going to make this work five years from now? If that's all you worry about, you're never going to last five years. So you know fundamentally, it's it's outstanding advice, and it and it remains just as just as valid today. You know, I think one of the interesting things that we learned in the ride here at Scaler was it's great advice until you outgrow it. And eventually you are scaling and you need to do things that do scale. And spotting that turn is interesting. And, and it's not one moment. You know, you're in the early days, you're doing 100 things that don't scale and they're all going to sort of reach their boundary at different times. And so, you know, something that we've somewhat belatedly learned is that at all these things that you're doing that don't scale, you need to really be keeping a weather eye out to figure out where you're at the point where actually this needs to scale now. Um, and a lot of it boils down to you know, do things that don't scale mostly means do things manually, don't automate it, and do it yourself, don't hire for it. Beginning, you know, you're, you're three people or whatever your founding team is, and you're all doing everything manually. And scaling is going to be either automating things or hiring a team to do those things or sometimes outsourcing those things. And so you need to look at all these things that you're doing manually and recognize sort of obviously which ones are starting to really eat up my time, but a little bit more subtly, which things are we giving short shrift to because we kind of know we don't have time to do them. And so... we to just start putting things off or underserve certain functions because you don't have time and you lose track of the fact that oh wait actually this is solvable I just need to hire someone to do it or I need to automate it but because it creeps up on you bit by bit by bit pretty soon you're letting something completely drop on the floor but because you got there bit by bit by bit you don't even realize that you're doing it until suddenly it's a big problem so it's looking looking for those things that you're starting to outgrow. Uh, and the um, the value of VCs seeing around the corner for you. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, that's true, actually. I always believe that. I just had a guest on the show that told me we would not have VCs in two years time, and so I'm pleased there is still some room for VCs in the market. I do want to, before we move into the quick find, discuss another element, though, that's kind of crucial to the scaling success story is kind of the element of the success of your customers. Customer success obviously one of the hottest topics over the last few years, but when we spoke before, you said to me maybe delay building your Customer success team. This maybe goes contrary quite a lot of what I, I hear on the show. So why do you believe this, Stephen? What are the benefits to delaying the building of the customer success team?
1: Well, so I mean, so that's the approach we, we took at Scaler. Um, I was the entire customer success team until about a year ago. So we were really quite far along in, in the growth of the company. We had well over a, a hundred customers at that point. And now, customer success as a function, of course, is critical. And so, you know, when I talk about delay the team, you know, I don't mean delay customer. success Success. I just mean delay breaking that out into a, its own team, and I think there's two reasons for that. One is customer success is a critical input channel for you to you know understand how, you know how your customers are succeeding or not. Where is the product working for them? Where is it not working? Where is the where are the rough spots where you can improve things? So you know you want to be careful not to hire that team too early and let them. And then when you do hire them, they need to not become a kind of a communications barrier. To So by having other core people on the team, such as in my case, the CEO, you know, doing that work directly with the customers, you know, you're absolutely ensuring that, you know, you're hearing all the feedback directly. And the other reason is... You know, when we talk about customer success team being critical, of course, what we really mean is that, you know, happy customers and successful customers are critical. But having a big team of people devoted to that is the wrong way to accomplish it. It's critical that the role of customer success is not just to make the customers successful, it's to provide the product feedback so that the customers are successful without help. And if you scale that team too quickly, if they're too good at their job, they will make up for a lot of failings in the product and you won't develop that organizational muscle of having to constantly improve the product to stay ahead of what customers are tripping over. So, you know, it's a critical function, it's a critical team, but you want to make sure that they're not sort of strong enough to carry the organization and hide flaws in the product. No, absolutely. I agree with you there.
0: And I haven't thought about kind of being too good that they actually hide flaws in the product. I am interested. So if that's kind of the internal dynamics of the team there, which kind of make customers successful and make customers happy... You also said before to me about the structure of startups uh, and how they can take advantage of the nimbleness that SaaS enables to amaze customers. But you did leave me on a bit of a cliffhanger there. So, what are those two ways, and, and how can you break down their power in maximizing customer satisfaction, so to speak?
1: Yeah. So the two things, uh, and these are both things we we really just stumbled onto as we were developing Scalar. But one is when you're working with a customer or a prospect, and, you know, maybe especially with a prospect, you know, sales prospect, so you know they don't know you, they don't know the product. Too well yet. They're getting their first impression of you. But you're working with them, demoing the product, you know, getting a proof of concept going. Inevitably, they'll stumble onto some issue. They might encounter a bug, they might encounter a you know some missing functionality in the product. It might just be that they're looking for a feature and it's there, but they don't find it. You know, that's of course very common when someone's getting up to speed on any new tool. That's your opportunity to remove a thorn from their paw, to give them a just really quick turnaround on you know whatever that problem is. So obviously that means you know responding to them and helping. Helping them. But it can also, because it's a SaaS product and you can update the software so easily, you have the opportunity to go in and say, oh, yeah, the, you know, sorry, you couldn't find it. Actually, we do do that. And here's how you do it. And by the way, we've already updated the documentation to reflect that. Or we've updated the messaging on that screen that you tripped over. So hopefully, as the rest of your team is coming on board, they won't have the confusion that you had. Uh, or you're right, that is a bug. And by the way, we've already fixed it. Even if it's something tiny, even if it is just a, a change to some, wording to make something less confusing may be very easy for you, but people really appreciate that, that, you know, they're impressed that, you know, it sends a message that you really care about that success. And then, and then the other side is, um, you know, people sometimes talk about concierge features, just a, a $2 word for, you, you know, you've got some function in your product that involves a, a human being taking some action, not fully automated. And we've built that into, into Scaler in a few places. One, one is, so, you know, our product, we're, in, we're ingesting logs from people servers and there's a step where we parse those logs we look through them and and kind of take that plain text and extract the structured information that's hiding inside it so uh, that means these rules have to be set up in our product to define where that information uh, comes from so we've built a little language to define this our customers can go in and use that to define these parsers but often our support team will also just do that on the customer's behalf and we actually put a button in the product in the place where you would go to create a parser the button says do it for me and that sends a message to our support team, and they go in and they create the parser. And now we could also enable that experience by just having customers reach out to our support line and ask for it. But just by putting the button in, it was virtually no extra work for us. In some ways, it actually makes our job easier because that button automatically supplies all the information that we're going to need, whereas otherwise there might be a couple of back and forth rounds between the support team and, and the customer. So it actually made our life easier. But also, customers love it because they, they don't feel like they're bothering someone, You know, people People will feel bad about reaching out to support, even though know, you want them to do it, and it's also just quicker and easier for them. Um, so you know, it looks like we've got this great thing. You know, it's even better than artificial intelligence. There's a natural intelligence feature in the product. You push this button, and a human being does something for you. You know, at the same time, it's a very easy thing for us to provide.
0: Can I ask? Can I jump in and ask? Is that doing something unscalable?
1: I, so I say no. You know, people talk always. Oh, you scale. You know, you can't do things manually, and you can if they're efficient when you're. You know, a hundred times the size. It's going to be a hundred times the work. Uh, but you should have a hundred times the revenue to pay for it. So maybe a silly analogy, but no one goes to GM and says, "How can you make give cars to all of your customers?" When you scale, you're going to have to make so many cars that people pay for them. If you're doing non-scalable things or upfront that are not sustainable, where you're doing huge work behind the scenes to make it look like you built a thing that you really haven't built, that won't scale. But if what you're doing is efficient, if it doesn't cost you much, if it doesn't take much time. If the economics are positive, then that scales just fine. And so, you know, I think it's it's important to distinguish between manual effort that is efficient and sustainable and economic, and manual effort that is none of those things and makes sense only in the early days when you're sort of in the "fake it till you make it" stage.
0: No, I, I totally agree with you there, and I think we we sometimes get lost in this. Oh, it's customized, terrified, vicious circle. When that GM example is actually very brilliant. Uh, I do want to dive though, Steve, into my favorite. But really of any interview being the quick fire round. So essentially, I say a, a little statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts in 60 seconds or less. Are you ready? Uh, sure. Tell me the hardest element of moving from tech co-founder to CEO.
1: Managing people, building an organization. It's uh, it's just, you know, it's a completely different skill set and it's a lot of fun. It's very exciting, but building a team is, has nothing to do with with building technology. So, you know, it's been a been a lot of uh, you know, on the job learning. For me, for sure.
0: Tell me a moment in your life that served maybe as an inflection point and changed the way you think.
1: So I would point to my really the time I spent at Google, which was a huge education in working at scale. There's a lot of things that make Google different and interesting uh, technology they've built, and you know, and, and so on. But underlying all of this, and this is something you really feel when you're there on the inside, is the scale of everything that's going on. Oh, we're launching a small. You'll hear people say, you know, we're launching a small experiment. It's it's just one million users at this stage, and like that and you know i used to really get vertigo almost literally in my, in my early time there um you know we sat next to the gmail team when we came in and they were already had something like 50 million users uh, back then and, and so just the scale of everything that was going on was astounding but eventually you get unafraid of it and a big number is still just a number you know that, that that's what really taught me that it's okay to tackle something at really large scale you know you can still do it what's the top lesson to selling to developer
0: org successfully
1: so you know i like to say that you know Selling to developers is just like selling to anyone else, except they don't want to talk to you and they don't believe anything you say. So, basically you can't tell them things so you have to show them. Demos, benchmarks, videos, you know, maybe customer testimonials. Things that they will feel that they can evaluate themselves and kind of directly understand instead of having you feed information to them. Yeah, I know. I, I love
0: that assessment. Uh, tell me, when I say success in the SaaS, who's the Embodiment of this to you,
1: Steve? You know, I guess the company that, that leaps in my head uh, would be GitHub you know they just came sort of you know seemingly out of nowhere and just became the default option for an entire category you know i think it's one of these nice examples of they just sort of you know picked one thing and did it very well one of the key things about SAS is simplicity and they nailed that for whatever features it did or didn't have it had a pretty good base you know kind of base set of functionality just from git and it made it very easy even if it didn't add every value you wanted it to add it did nothing to get in your way and then they've only you know improved enough improved over time. And
0: then final
1: question, and probably my favorite of all, and you can choose here, there's a bit of optionality.
0: What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Now, this can be your beginning time at Scalar or beginning time at Rightly. You can choose. But what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning?
1: I'll go with Scalar, And it's very simply, when you're growing rapidly, you need to make all of your hires three months before you think you should. And this kind of goes back to that, you know, doing things that scale or, you know, don't scale question. And spotting the turn during rapid growth things get ahead of you so quickly that by the time you're starting to realize oh it's a little bit too much work for me to handle this myself by the time you go and put together a job description and go and find people and interview and get someone to come on board and they start and they come up to speed you're way behind where you needed to be and so just you know you really have to be looking ahead and when, when something is a quarter time job for someone by the time you then go and hire for it it will have become a full-time job and so it's time to start steve it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show as i said i've been talking to leo for months
0: about how excited i've been about this I'm so excited for the time I ahead with scaler but thank you so much for joining me stay
1: steve i uh, thank you this has been great and I have to
0: say, I really could not be more excited about the next chapters with Scalar building an incredible product, and I cannot wait to see the next chapters there. But I do want to say, if you'd like to suggest names and questions for future episodes, you can on Instagram at hdebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SAS, Activity Hero. Activity Hero helps parents find camps, after-school classes, workshops, and kids' nights out. Camp and class providers nationwide can get new customers, track registrations, and manage payments in one great app. And you can learn more at activityhero.com And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Activity Hero did, then visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. And WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash sasta. Who knows, work with WePay, and you could even be featured in a future profile. Start at wepay.com forward slash sasta. And speaking of transforming your business, as a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, whether that be hiring execs, developing managers, retaining top talent, and fundamentally building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies, and it helps companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a strong company culture. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines both performance management and and employee engagement, so operators can really make sure top performers are happy. And Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com forward slash Sasta. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. And that's all we have time for today. I cannot wait to bring you a very special episode next week with Dan Reich, founder and CEO at Troops.ai.